Amen. Well, if you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and today we're going to come to uh, the conclusion of this great chapter in the book of Hebrews, this pinnacle chapter in the Word of God that teaches us what biblical faith is. We have talked as we've walked through the book of Hebrews together about how uh, biblical faith is very different than how the world often thinks of faith. Uh, worldly faith is often referred to as more of a blind faith, a uh, faith without evidence, a faith without assurance. But what we find in Hebrews 11 is very much a biblical faith. And this is why the writer of Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It is rooted in and based in the evidence, the assurance that we find throughout the Word of God. And so the writer of Hebrews has given us not only this definition, but walked us through example after example through the narrative of God's Word to show us what specific biblical faith looks like, what acts of faith look like. He's started out with creation and then he's walked down through the first family and Abel and all the way through to the entrance of God's people into the land of promise and the walls of Jericho falling down. And now in the summary of this chapter, we have uh, more of just a, a general sense of what faith is. He mentions several more names, but doesn't give a lot of specifics. Rather, he tells us generally, he, here's what faith looks like. If I had time to tell, we could go into all these details. But he basically gives us a summary. And then in that summary, he draws our attention. He draws the Hebrew Christian's attention to where it needs to be. Uh, a faith a faith that rests confidently in Jesus Christ who indeed is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And so we're going to look at Hebrews 11 beginning there in verse 32. And this is what God's word says to us. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign arm armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might raise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Let's pray for our time in God's Word today. Father, we do once again thank you that in this time, in this hour, in this day, you have not abandoned us. You have not left us to ourselves. You have given us your word. You have promised us your presence. Christ has told us 
He'll never leave us or forsake us. He is always with us. So Lord, help us to better understand what it means to have this fellowship with you through faith, by faith. Help us again to understand what true, genuine, biblical faith is. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in a time of global crisis. We are in a time of national crisis through this pandemic of coronavirus. And we have seen a lot of things come from it. There are some positives that many people have remarked on in recent days that have come from this time because for many of us, life has slowed down dramatically. Many of us are finding ourselves sitting around the dinner table and having extended conversations. We're spending time on walks and going outdoors with our family. So much of our life has been canceled and put on hold and postponed, and we really can't get out and interact with a lot of others. So for some of us, there's been the positive of just spending more time together as a family. That's a good thing that we've seen come out of this. But of course, there are many bad things. This is a global pandemic. There are people who today are suffering and who today will lose their lives. And not only that, we've seen other negatives as well. We see, like many times of crisis, there are people who seek to profit from this. And sadly, one of the groups that we've seen seek to profit from this have done so using the name of Jesus Christ. Because it's in this pandemic, it's in this coronavirus that we continue to see the evils, the wickedness of those who preach a prosperity gospel. A prosperity gospel that says if you have enough faith, if you just trust God enough, He will give you great wealth, He will give you health, that you can overcome anything, including the coronavirus, if you just have enough faith. And oftentimes these Proponents of the prosperity gospel are are glad to help you with that faith. You see, if you have suffering in your life, they say that's because your faith isn't strong enough and they will help you grow your faith and help you to have a stronger faith when you send them gifts and when you pay them money, when you plant a seed of faith, often through a financial contribution, well, then they'll, they'll help you grow that faith. And sadly, they are charlatans and they are profiting are seeking to profit in this time of crisis. I'll give you just a few examples. In recent weeks, one prosperity gospel preacher read from Psalm 91 on their international broadcast. And as they read that psalm, they asked for people to send in in seeds of faith. uh, $91, $910, anything with a 9 and a 1 in it in order to protect your family, to protect yourself from the coronavirus. This, This shield of protection, this hedge of protection would be given to you if you planted that seed of faith. Another invited a guest on their program who was peddling a product that they claimed would cure HIV, cure all kinds of diseases, and would cure coronavirus. If you just send in your gift by faith and use this ointment, this product, it would heal you of coronavirus. And yet another instructed viewers to put their hands on their television screens, on their computer screens, and said if they would do that by faith, that this this faith healer, this prosperity gospel preacher, that they would send out a, a healing through the airwaves, through the internet, that would cover you and would heal you and would cure you of this deadly virus. 
This same prosperity gospel preacher then went on in another broadcast to exhale strongly and and blow into the camera and said they were blowing the very breath of God that would then go across the globe and in that moment would cure coronavirus everywhere. You find these prosperity gospel preachers all over the airways, all over the internet, making claims that if you have enough faith and if you send enough money, they can heal you of coronavirus or any other ailment you have. But one place you will not find them is walking the halls of the hospitals in New York State or other hospitals around our nation that are overwhelmed with people who are suffering from this illness. Where you will not find them is among the sick and among the dying. No, you will find them in their studios. You will find them in their mansions. You will find them on the airways. And there they will say from those places of comfort, if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. We need to understand that when we come across these prosperity gospel preachers, that the Christ that they claim is not the Christ of Scripture. We need to understand that the gospel that they peddle is not the gospel that Jesus preached. And the way that we understand that is by opening up the very word of God that God himself has given to us. And through the study of this word, will we learn what biblical, genuine, authentic faith is. This is a faith that is absent from the messages of the prosperity gospel preachers, but it is a faith that is throughout the Word of God, and it is through the Word of God that we then can respond to these false prophets. We can respond to these preachers of a false gospel. We can better respond to those who say to us, if you have enough faith, you'll have health. If you have enough faith, you'll have Wealth, if you have enough faith, you will prosper. That God's word tells us that that's not the case at all. In fact, God's word tells us that it is often those who exercise the greatest amount of biblical faith who then find themselves without wealth, without health, without prosperity, that find themselves suffering. Now, we certainly do find in God's word that God is the giver of all good things. And we are to trust in Him for provision. We are to come to Him in our sickness and our illness. And we are to, to pray to Him that He might restore health to us. But we need to understand that the great error of the prosperity gospel is that it makes prosperity the gospel. And that's not what we find in the Word of God. We find the true, authentic, genuine gospel rest in Jesus Christ and having faith in Jesus Christ. And it is that faith that we are called to as we come to the Word of God and especially to passages like Hebrews 11 which help us to understand what true, genuine, biblical faith is. And so as we come to the conclusion of Hebrews 11... I want us to consider three more things that we learn about biblical faith from this chapter. The first one is this, that biblical faith does not guarantee health, wealth, and prosperity. Biblical faith does not guarantee health, wealth, and prosperity. 
Now, we've been given specific examples as we walk through Hebrews 11 together. We started out there in Genesis with creation and we started out with Abel and then we were able to walk down through uh, biblical history and look at what biblical faith looks like and what biblical faith is. And now in summary, the writer of Hebrews has basically said there, there's not enough time to go through every example of faith that we see in the Scripture. And so he simply lists off a group of names. He starts out there in verse 32 with six individuals that he mentions, four of whom come from the period of the judges. Now, if you know from your study of God's Word much about the period of the judges, you know this was a very dark time for the people of God. It was a time that we're told when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a time of great wickedness and great apostasy. And so these men stood out as a faithful minority during this time. He just simply mentions their name. And then with them he mentions David and Samuel. Now David alone is one that we can look at and we can study and we can find numerous accounts of his faith and and what genuine faith looked like in the life of David. But for here the, the writer just simply mentions their names. He doesn't get into those details. He simply tells us the the types of acts of faith they were involved in. And so then he continues in verse 33 and following to say that that these men and others were part of those who conquered kingdoms and they escaped the edge of the sword and they defeated foreign armies. And many of them did this with small numbers and limited resources. He goes on to say there are even women who received back their dead, who experienced the power of the resurrection of the dead being brought back to life. Now, these verses taken just alone can be read and and thought of as verses that might suggest health and wealth and prosperity. I mean, they talk about conquering kingdoms and and defeating armies and and these great things that have happened in the lives of the people of God. And and oftentimes the prosperity gospel preacher will lock onto them and will, will speak much of them. In fact, David's one of their favorites. You can tune into one of the many broadcasts of the prosperity gospel preacher, and you'll find them talking about David. And For example, when he conquered Goliath. And the way they'll talk about that is this, that if you just have faith like David, if you just trust God like David did, if you just, you just exercise that faith, then, then you can conquer the giants in your life as well. Do you have financial debt? Well, that's a giant that you can conquer by faith. Do you have worries, anxiety? Well, you can conquer those giants by faith. Do you have poor health or sickness or disease? You can overcome those giants if you have enough faith. But what you'll notice when you turn off the voices of the prosperity gospel preachers and you open up the word of God is that that's not how God's word talks about David or points us towards David. In fact, the writer of Hebrews here doesn't mention David's name in order to say, well, if you want to have faith, just be more like David. No, he mentions David in the context of many others to show us the focus of David's faith, of Samuel's faith, of so many others' faith that are in Hebrews 11, and how their faith was focused on the promises of God. 
Uh, They were looking towards the fulfillment of those promises and they were trusting in God, not in themselves. They were understanding along the way that as they trusted in God, that they might suffer in this world, but that this world was not their home and this world is not our home. And as we walk through passages like Hebrews 11, we're able to discern rather quickly that this is not a formula for health and wealth and prosperity. Rather, it is a reminder to us that those who stand out in the Scripture as having exercised great faith and trust in the Lord are among some of those who have suffered the most in the pages of Scripture. It's a reminder to us that faith is not a recipe, again, a formula for these things that the prosperity gospel peddles. Rather, faith is what God calls us to in order to receive a reward, a great reward, but a reward that is to come in eternity. And we see that as we continue in this passage, because as we continue in verse 35, we find here not just the accounts of armies being conquered and of odds being overcome. No, what do we find? We find that some who had great faith suffered greatly. The writer reminds us they were mocked, they were beaten, they were imprisoned, they were killed. Others lived, but they were destitute, they were afflicted, they were mistreated. Some of them never even had an earthly home. Now these verses are not favorites among the prosperity gospel preachers. In fact, they often don't mention them or many verses that we come to as we consider the whole counsel of God's word because what we find as we consider that whole counsel is that Christians are not immune from suffering. The suffering does not come as a result of lacking faith and that for many who trust in God and walk by faith in God when they do that they they lose health and wealth and prosperity. And they find themselves in the midst of affliction and mistreatment and persecution. In fact, the gospel tells us that if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you need to prepare yourself to suffer. We've seen that as we've walked through the book of Hebrews together because in this book we find suffering We do not find the writer of Hebrews saying to the Hebrew people who are in the midst of their own suffering, their own persecution, he's not telling them, fake it till you make it. He's not telling them, name it and claim it. Now what does he tell them? He says in the midst of their suffering, they are to persevere. He encourages them to endure. He tells them to hold fast. He tells them not to give up. Why? Because they were suffering for the sake of the gospel. He never once says anything close to, well, if you just have enough faith, then then all this persecution will end. If you just have enough faith, then all these trials will cease. Rather, he reminds them 
that the people of God have always suffered and they've always encountered trials and they've always been called to endure. In fact, he reminds them that not only does genuine faith often come accompanied with suffering, he reminds them that genuine faith often grows stronger in the midst of suffering. It grows deeper through suffering. It is a tool through which that, a tool that God uses in our lives to sanctify us and grow us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. This is a message that's not just limited to the book of Hebrews. This is a message that we see throughout God's word. We're reminded in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, that God's will for his people includes the suffering of his people. 1 Peter 4, 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I mean, consider the riches of that verse. It is within the will of God that we suffer. It is part of God's plan, part of God's will that we encounter these trials, that we suffer. And as we do, what are we called to do? We're called to trust in God all the more. Why? Because He is our faithful Creator. And what does He call us to do in the midst of our suffer, suffering? To keep doing good. To keep trusting in Him. To walk by faith and not by sight. We're reminded as we began our service today of what God calls us to in Romans chapter 5. That, that God has purpose for our suffering. Again, Romans 5, beginning in verse 3, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Friends, the Scripture reminds us that in the midst of our suffering, as awful and as overwhelming as it is, that in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that distress, the Scripture reminds us that we can rejoice. Now, I don't think God's Word's telling us there to, to turn that frown upside down and just to put on a happy face and just to fake it till we make it. No, I think what God's Word is saying is that even in the depths of our suffering, even in the exhaustion of our desolation, we can have a joy in knowing that God is still sovereign and God is still in control and God has a way of uniquely using suffering in, a, in our lives in a way that, that, that nothing else does, in a way that just grows us in our dependence on Him, that, that grows us in our faith in Him. And He does this during times of suffering uniquely because it's during times when everything is going well and when life is good during these times, we are prone to wander. We are prone to become self-sufficient. I mean, one of the things I believe the Lord has taught us very clearly in recent days is that we are not self-sufficient people. <laughs> we are dependent on so much in our lives, aren't we? I mean, you just think about our, our nation. And when there's been a threat to supply chains and certain goods going out, and you look at the desperation 
of people who were waiting in lines for an hour to get a roll of toilet paper. It reminds us we're not nearly as self-sufficient as we thought we were. And how do we receive that reminder? We receive that reminder in a time when life gets different, when things aren't just normal, when everything's not just there for us to go and get whenever we please, when things get hard, when resources aren't available anymore, when trials come, then we find that we're not as self-sufficient as we thought we were. And on a much deeper level, God uses these times in our life, these times of trial and suffering, these times of of despair and desperation. He, He uses them to help us see our utter complete dependence on Him and our need to draw near to Him. And in drawing near to Him, He tells us we, we can rejoice in that suffering because He is using it. He has purpose for it. And ultimately, what we see God doing throughout His Word with our suffering and the suffering of so many is setting our hearts on heaven. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do you hear what God's Word says there? He says there's going to be a day when the sufferings that we experience here on earth, the thing, things much more severe than a coronavirus, when we experience devastating loss, when we experience overwhelming grief, when life turns out radically different than we ever thought or imagined it would, that there will come a day for those in Christ when those things that we experience in this present time, they're not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed. There will be a day, God's Word says, when Jesus will make all things new. I've heard people often comment on how when that day comes, when we, when we enter into eternity, I've heard people comment often about all these questions they're going to have for God and, and all these whys, God, why did you do this and why did you allow this? Do you see, though, what the Scripture says here? That when that day actually comes, I don't think we're going to be asking so many questions. Why? Because we will have in front of us the answer. The overwhelming presence and glory that is revealed in front of us. And we are created for that. And we find fulfillment in that which is to come. And now as we are in our present sufferings, we are called, God uses them to place our focus rightly where it should have been all along on the glory of God and what is to come. Oh, friends, can you see in light of that how desperately short the prosperity gospel falls? Biblical faith is not about guaranteeing us health and wealth and prosperity. No, we see that biblical faith guarantees us something so much better. And that's what we find as we continue in this passage. Point two, biblical faith guarantees something better. Verse 39, and all of these, so now the the, the writer steps back here in Hebrews 11, having mentioned so many examples, some just by name without going into details. He says, and all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. 
Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Okay, he says that they are commended through their faith. Now that means that God recognizes their faith. That God is welcoming them into his household. That they're a part of this old covenant community that was trusting in God and looking forward to the day that his promises would be fulfilled. And yet, what do we, are we reminded of here? They did not receive what was promised. So they died having not received the fullness of what God had promised to them. You think of some of the examples that have been given in Hebrews 11, Abraham and Sarah. What were they promised by God? They were promised not just a child, they were promised a great number of descendants, and yet that did not come to fruition before they died. You think of Moses. Well, what does God call Moses to do when he, he, he comes to him there in the burning bush? He, he calls them to be the great deliverer, to lead the people out of their slavery in Egypt, and he calls Moses to lead them into the land of promise. That, that, that land that God had promised for his people, Canaan, the land flowing with, with, with milk and honey, and yet when Moses dies... He doesn't see the fulfillment of that promise. And of course, we think of the great promise that's made in Genesis chapter 3 after we find in God's word that the fall of man where Adam and Eve sin against God and disobey God and there's great consequence that comes with that disobedience. We find a promise that God makes in Genesis 3.15 that a redeemer, a Messiah will come. He will ultimately crush the enemy, we find here that the promise of the new covenant that would come ultimately through the blood of Jesus Christ, the greater covenant, the greater mediator, the greater sacrifice, the greater hope that would come through Jesus. And yet, none of these people in Hebrews 11 lived to see that fulfillment, lived to see that hope. They were looking forward to what was coming. They died in faith looking forward, but they died having not yet seen it or realized it or experienced it. And then notice what he says, that they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. And again, consider what we've read about in Hebrews 11. I mean, you consider these great acts of faith that God's people were able to experience. The, the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt as they've been in slavery. The, the miraculous plagues that God brought upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The, the, the parting of the Red Sea. The walking through the sea on dry ground. The swallowing up of the enemies of the people of God with that very same sea. The, the, the miraculous deliverance God offers His people as they walk and march around the walls of Jericho and then those walls just fall down on their enemies and consume them. That these things we read about and that we marvel at. What does God's Word say? It says God has provided something better for us. And again, consider the context here. That the writer of Hebrews is writing to Hebrew Christians who had the utmost regard for the Old Testament and these things that had happened in the Old Testament. 
They, they look to Abraham and, and Moses and others as, as absolute heroes of the faith. They taught their children and their children's children about the parting of the Red Sea and the walls of Jericho falling down. These were the stories they would tell their children at night. This is what they celebrated as they worshiped God together. And now they find themselves in persecution, in suffering. Some are considering even abandoning their faith in Jesus Christ. And what does the writer of Hebrews say? to them? What is God's word to them in their suffering? You have something better than the parting of the Red Sea. You have something better than the army of your enemies being conquered. You have something better than the walls of Jericho falling down. You have something better than the women who received their dead back and experienced the resurrection of the dead. You have something infinitely better and what is it that they have they have the full revelation of jesus christ how does the writer of hebrews begin this word to them we have the full and the final revelation of god given to us in and through jesus christ the greater prophet the greater mediator the the one who provides the new covenant we now have direct access to god through jesus he is reminding them that that which the men and women of old long to see we now can look back on with full vision and we can behold the glory of the gospel the things that they died without seeing, we have now seen. And that is a better thing. In fact, he says that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Again, here he is referring now to the, the Hebrew Christians. He's saying apart from us, he's, he's saying we, we now live this side of the new covenant. We've experienced the fullness of the hope and the promises that God has made. And so apart from that new covenant, apart from Christ living and dying on the cross and being resurrected and that new covenant that comes through his blood, apart from that, there's no hope for anybody. And it's the only way that the people of old would ever be made perfect is through that which God would deliver in Jesus Christ on the cross. They had faith and they died in a faith that was looking forward to that day. And now we can look on that day and see the fullness of it. And we can live as new covenant believers. Look at what we have, the writer here is saying. In this time of trial, this time of suffering, he's reminding these Hebrew Christians, of the great wealth, the great prosperity that they have in the trueness of the gospel, the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. See, the gospel very clearly tells us, going back to Genesis 3.15, that 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 day would come when, when the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. It points us forward to what we see on the cross of Jesus Christ. Why the cross? Because God's Word clearly teaches us that we have all sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. Now what that means, you boil that down, what it means is this, is that every single one of us is born with a sin nature. And that does not mean that we are the worst version of ourselves. It doesn't mean that that the moment that toilet paper is scarce, that we're going to kill our neighbor to get toilet paper. 
But what it means is that, that, that our heart is bent towards, our, our gravitational pull is towards sin. And the scripture says that all of us have sinned and we fall short of God's glory. God is perfect. He is without sin. He is holy and he is righteous. We fall short of that. Desperately short. And the scripture says there's a consequence for that sin, that the wages of our sin is death. That just as God removed Adam and Eve from his presence in the garden, we too are separated from God because of our sin, and we deserve the wrath of God for our sin. But what we read, the glorious hope that we have, that we hold on to, Romans 5.8 is that God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, the scripture teaches us that, that God took him who knew no sin. Jesus, truly God, truly man, was perfect. He lived a, a perfect life. He never sinned. That he who knew no sin, he became sin for us. He, he took on our debt of sin on the cross. And this great exchange takes place. Where Christ dies in our place. He dies the death that we deserve on the cross for our sin. And in exchange for those who will trust in Him and repent and place their faith in Him, we receive His righteousness. He he dies a death He doesn't deserve. And by faith we receive righteousness that we don't deserve. But it's only through that great exchange that we might one day come into the presence of a holy God. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is referring to when he talks about being made perfect, being made right. That this is how all things are made new. That this is how all things are made right. Some of us might look on the the, the TV and look at the news today and we see a world in chaos. And we see a world out of sorts. And many look at that world and say, how will this ever be made right? And friends, we're reminded that it's not going to be made right through a cure for coronavirus. Because there'll be another plague. It's not going to be made right through the recovery of the stock market. Because there'll be another Thing that comes to us and devastates us financially. It's not going to be made right through no more social isolation and everyone being able to gather and come together again. Why? Because those things do not pay the debt of sin. They do not overcome our sin problem. No, the only way that all will be made new and all will be made right is through faith and trust and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the day when He returns for us and the day when we're brought into a new heaven and a new earth and a day when we experience the glory that we look towards and look ahead to. The writer of Hebrews is saying here to the Hebrew Christians in light of their persecution and their suffering. He's saying, look back throughout the pages of biblical history and consider we have something better today. We have the gospel of Jesus. That is the gospel that brings us hope. And friends, that is the same message for us this Lord's day. That is why we sing. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but we wholly lean on Jesus' name. Why? Because He is our solid rock, and it's on Him that we stand. The writer of Hebrews is reminding these struggling believers that they have something greater than health and wealth and prosperity. They have something greater than winning battles and conquering kingdoms and even greater than a mother receiving her loved one from the dead. They have Jesus. And Jesus is greater. And that brings us to our third and our final point in conclusion. Point three, biblical faith rests in Jesus. That that's the message of the book of Hebrews, and that is certainly the message of chapter 11, and that's what's going to bring us into this next chapter, chapter 12. This reminder for us that biblical faith rests in Jesus. This is the overall point of what we've been studying, that we find our rest in Jesus Christ. And this is the rest that sadly the prosperity gospel sorely misses out on. Again, the problem with the prosperity gospel is that it makes prosperity the gospel and it misses out on the hope that we have in Jesus. So friends, be reminded today that our hope, it doesn't rest in the greatness of our health. Our hope rests in Jesus. That our hope does not rest in the vastness of our wealth. Our hope rests in Jesus. Our hope does not rest in prosperity. Our hope rests in Jesus. We find our rest in Him. And the question for us this Lord's Day is this. Are you finding your rest in Jesus? I want to remind you of the words that Christ told us in Matthew chapter 11 beginning in verse 28. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friend, are you anxious today? Then find your rest in Jesus. Are you weary today? You need to find your rest in Jesus. Even during this time when everything has slowed down and and been canceled or postponed, you, you may still find yourself today completely and utterly exhausted. You need to find your rest in Jesus. Overwhelmed, anxious, weary, exhausted, wherever you may find yourself today, the invitation is to come to Jesus and to find your rest in Him. And so that is my prayer for you. That is my prayer for our church family. That during this time, this season that God has sovereignly placed us in, that we would turn to Jesus, that we would find our rest in Jesus, and that we would invite a lost and confused and dying world around us to find their rest in Jesus as well. If you would pray with me. Father God, we thank you that in this day, in this time, your invitation to us is clear. You have invited us to come to Christ, to have faith in Christ, to trust in Christ. And so Lord, I pray 
for everyone who is listening to this service, everyone who is watching this service, that, that for each of them, that, that we would all take a moment and consider right now, are we finding our rest in Christ? Are we placing our rest in Christ or is our hope, our rest, our trust in something else? Lord, you have gotten our attention. You have corrected our vision. You, you are pointing us directly today to the cross of Jesus. Father, I pray that we would see it and that we would respond in faith. And so, Lord, I ask that you would do what only you can do, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would bring the dead to life, that you would help the blind to see, that you would help the deaf to hear, that you would help those who are filled with unbelief to believe and to trust in Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I hope that your trust is in Jesus it may be that your trust is not in Christ. It may be that you have many questions about the gospel. It may be that even in these days where you can't come and gather at a church, that you're, you're just looking and searching for answers. And I want you to know that there are people available who, who want to talk with you, who want to pray with you, who want to counsel with you. You can go to our church website. You can find our contact information there. You can get in touch with myself or, or Pastor Nick. You can get in touch with our pastoral intern, uh, Madison. We, we would love to, to email with you, to, to talk with you, to text with you, to, to communicate more with you about what it means to have a hope that rests in Jesus Christ. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us if you have any questions about the gospel at all. My hope and prayer during this season when we cannot gather during this season of coronavirus, my hope and prayer is that we would take this time we have to truly consider, God, what are you seeking to teach us through this? And friends, if you are in a spot today where you've yet to place your trust in Jesus, I guarantee you what God desires to teach you today is your need to repent and to trust in him. And I pray that you'll do that in the name of Christ.